And here we go for another installment of God's Word during exile. We are four, five, six, seven pastors who gather in order to study God's Word. And we're putting together a Bible study right now. We find ourselves in the book of Revelation, the fourth time through chapter 17, right? This is number four. Third? All right, now I don't feel too bad. So if we don't get through 17 today... I think we're doing all right, boys. All right. Um, so this past week, our church celebrated our 50th anniversary. It was a great time. We gathered and uh, celebrated God's faithfulness. And so I am encouraged coming off that. And uh, I had quite a few people who were at the meal who mentioned God's word during exile, which made me feel really good. Um, and they mentioned what a clown I was during it, but that they appreciated the insight of Ben and Matt and Mike. Uh, and, and I said, well, what about like, what about my gifts and stuff? And they're like, yeah, you just act like you act regularly at church. So it's good to get someone, <laughs> someone's intellectual uh, occurrence going on at least a little bit. So my congregation is incredibly blessed to have you guys here to offset my giftness and uh, to, I guess, share God's word in a way that um, maybe they're not getting from me. But that's it. I'm happy that I'm here and uh, I'm happy that I can uh, scoot in on your coattails. Uh, I'm just going to hold tight to uh, all of you guys and just ride this thing out. So thanks for allowing me to be a part of it, guys. I didn't think you were riding our coattails. I thought we were all just sitting on your shoulders. Because you're you're carrying us, Mike. Well, that's not the way that my congregation sees it. Uh, but I appreciate the encouragement. Uh, but regardless of what was said, the gifts are still coming in force. I got a few that are just going to be great. Hopefully, we'll get to them today. But we'll see. Don't worry, I won't share that Luther gift that I found. But I did find another Luther gift that maybe I will share, which would be good. All right, um, that's all I got. Who wants to uh, open in prayer? You're not going to point at us or anything? Uh, Huss, Dubs, hey, Ben, you. Mike, we're ready to go. There you go. You got one. Good work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Myself. <laughs> let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then, uh, then we'll have Nelson pick up chapter 17 for us. Oh, Heavenly Father. Lord God, thanks for today. Lord, thank you for uh, another opportunity to dig into your word and keep talking through chapter 17 of Revelation. Uh, God, there are so many things in this book that can be really difficult and really confusing and hard to understand. And thank you for these opportunities to slow down and kind of talk through all of it um, and the blessing that it is to do so. Lord, also thank you for the fellowship of, of Matt and Ben and Mike um, and the blessing it is to have this time together. God, by your word, I pray that you would show us our sin today. Lord, bring us to repentance and point us to the finished work of Christ, which is enough even for us. By your word, strengthen our faith, we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Today, we're going to read again uh, Revelation 17, and uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. This is the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, 
and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make, war, make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of earth, of the earth. Here ends our reading. All right. <clears throat> Just to illustrate sort of how confusing the book of Revelation can be sometimes, I want to discall our attention to verses 9 and 10 again. All right. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, get this, are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And also get this intent. There are also seven kings. So if you weren't confused by this amazing and astounding imagery, guess what? The heads are mountains and kings at the same time. Good luck. Uh, right? <laughs> to piggyback off of that, I found two pictures today that I would like to share. I would like <laughs> to see them. All right. One totally epic and amazing in every way. You ready for this? I hope you drew one of them. Oh, I actually can't because Mike didn't allow me to share. Oh, give, well, give me just a half a second and I will remedy that situation. Are you sure you want to? Here we go. <laughs> you so, can go. Here, here's the first one. Okay, here we go. The woman seated. She's got this go. big oh, wow. chalice here. <laughs> And we got, looks like a leopard, okay? We're, we're saying, yeah, that's okay. Just wait. What, look at this picture. You ready for this? 
Boom, baby. Let's go. Oh, man. Dinosaur. I mean, this is like (laughs) Dino Rider action, boys. Look at this right Mm -hmm. now. Boy, yeah. that, that second picture, that totally made my day. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, those are pretty good, but I think you could do better, Mike. So maybe you should work on that uh, and show us later. What you it got it. Really look you got like. it. Yeah. Excellent. I'll keep, I'll keep moving. <clears throat> excellent. Excellent. All right. So we kind of overviewed in the last two weeks. We overviewed um, this entire chapter. We talked about the harlot at the beginning. She She's the same as the uh, as the as the religious beast, also identified as the false prophet, always kind of changing and bringing new messages to deceive the people, lead them away from God. Uh, the beast in here we identified as the the political beast mentioned elsewhere in in Revelation and talked about a lot of those details. But I think today, if we're ever going to get out of Revelation 17, which is a good choice, uh, we should probably get going about verse seven and talk through some of the details of that come toward the end of the chapter, right? Uh, so the angel speaking to John and says, why do you marvel? Um, silly question, right? He just saw something incredible. Of course, you're going to marvel. Astounding. Uh, and he offers to tell the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and the 10 horns that carry her. So, so this beast, it, it is identified in a lot of the similar, in, with similar language as the uh, political beast in other places. But we also have a couple of things that are different. Um, so verse eight, the beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction. Um, that's language that's not used to the beast elsewhere. What, what should we take from verse eight as it describes the beast in a different way? Well, the uh, was and is not and is to come is language that's associated with the dragon elsewhere, right? That, that is Satan or the devil himself. Um, and so it seems that uh, because the beast is, he, is here and elsewhere described as a, a tool of the devils, then we should say that he has would conferred be the right word, uh, his, you know, or placed his authority or this, these, these, uh, characteristics on this beast that is now working on his behalf or he's empowering this beast, um, working through it, uh, in a particular way, maybe. I don't know if that's the best way to describe that, but as you were talking about it, I thought of the wizard of Oz. Don't look behind the curtain. There's nothing behind the curtain. <laughs> you know, it is Satan that is the true power behind this. And so, yeah, I think we get we get that connection and that you, you draw in the line. This political beast, the power is it's all Satan. It's always been his work through all of this mess. Uh, and you mentioned that the was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Throughout Revelation, we get God described as, as the one who was and is and will be forevermore. And, you know, Satan's just a big counterfeiter, right? But his best counterfeit is, was, is, and guess what? He's about to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's in the middle one is, is not. It's kind of interesting, which is like the opposite of the I am, right? Mm-hmm. He is the is not. Not <laughs> uh, <laughs> if that makes sense. It It's a interesting play on words, right? Um, and so... Yeah, it's definitely a contrast to God himself. Um, And that's so that's really why it's uh, maybe the 
the way of referring to a way of referring to the devil as kind of the counterfeit God. And, um, but here it again is, is applying to this particular beast. And it seems that that's because, um, the devil is behind him and his work. I'm trying to no, go ahead, Ben. Okay. I was along with, with that too, I think it just kind of reinforces again, uh, to us that this beast, this political beast, um, doesn't look the same all the time throughout history. Um, it comes and goes in different forms. At times it can look pretty weak. Um, you know, as we'll see later, um, and other times it's strong. And so, you know, we know the end certainly of this beast that it goes to destruction, but in the meantime, um, it changes forms. So we're not looking for a specific form of government or, or whatever. We're not looking for, you know, a world empire to arise or something like that necessarily. Um, but I suppose, I mean, it could possibly happen that way, but you know, we're not looking for one particular thing. So it different guises, different forms of, of government and societies and all of that. And so it's able to uh, change and morph and it will not be uh, done away with until uh, Jesus returns. And so um, this is kind of a, I think this kind of fights against the idea of post-millennialism that sees, you know, that, that the church will continue to just, you know, gain in popularity and influence around uh, the world. And so essentially Christianizes the whole world before Jesus comes back. Um, and that's not really the picture at all that scripture gives us. In fact, Jesus tells us that as we get closer and closer to his return, things will get worse. Um, but this, this too factors into that because this beast um, is always going to be there until the devil himself is cast into the lake of fire. And so we don't, we're not looking for some kind of Christian utopia on earth either, or like as if the church is just going to go on, you know, looking triumphant uh, throughout all the ages till Jesus comes back. So the church always has to contend uh, with the devil and his minions, his beasts. And so once again, that's why on earth we are the church militant. We're always engaged in battle against devil world and flesh. And post-millennialism <clears throat> might not be something that you're super, super familiar with, um, kind of because it's fallen out of vogue most places in the United States and been replaced that, by other things. Is that the guy? Is that the guy who sings using auto tune? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah, post okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. got it. Okay, post yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about post -millennial. Yeah, post millennialism. Uh, but it was before the before the World Wars. It was a pretty popular view of of how things were going to come to an end of end times stuff. Right. So you had the Industrial Revolution. Everything seems to be kind of getting better. Um, but when we look at our world today, it's pretty easy to see the corruption and failing and sin and wickedness. And so. You know, it kind of has fallen out of vogue. But, you know, if you haven't heard of it, it's just a little side note. And yeah. I think with the world wars, too, um, a lot of the optimism of things came crashing down. You know, our country had because people are often way too, like, nationalistic about things and people. And it was a thing that was popular in America in particular. 
Um, and when people were feeling very optimistic about how everything was going in our country, um, it seemed like, hey, man, things are going to be so good that it's going to all be ready for Jesus to just step in. We're going to have his throne ready for him, and he's just going to sit down, and we're going to rule together. But then when uh, all that evil got stirred up across the world with the world wars, um, you know, a lot of that optimism came crashing down. And and that's really, you know, some of the time I think that like the, you know, premillennialism started becoming really popular because it went from like, hey, it's going to be so good. Jesus is going to come right back and sit on his throne to I want to get raptured out of here. And, uh, and it went from completely optimistic to completely pessimistic. Um, it, and uh, maybe that's a bit of an exaggerated um, way to boil it down. But uh, it seems that that was kind of the trend uh, of those movements. I think a little exaggerated, yeah. but not totally false either, you know? Yeah, because the dispensationalism in particular became super popular after World War II. Um, both of that turn of everything's bad, we want to get out of here, you know? And so we imagine that somehow we can escape <laughs> uh, the troubles of, of this world. Um, but also then, you know, with Hitler and and Nazi Germany and the way that they uh, treated the Jews and such, it created a lot of sympathy for the Jews, which isn't bad in itself, but it made its way into um kind of the general theology of American evangelicalism to which then, you know, gave rise to a lot of this stuff of, you know, Israel is the center of God's prophecies concerning the end times. And, you know, this whole rise of we, we as America, we need to support Israel because then God will bless us and so on. And so these things are all kind of tied, uh, tied together, um, arising at, kind of the same time right in that world war ii area whereas before as um as was mentioned post-millennialism was pretty dominant because that has been a pretty prominent uh view in the reformed church historically um especially among the puritans i think um and so not so much in the lutheran church uh, but you know very much so or much more so in a reformed church and that was primarily the influence in our nation. So, um, yeah. Anyways. Um, one thing to maybe tie in to this chapter to what Ben was saying about how this is something that happens throughout the church age, which has been a consistent interpretation that we've been taking is, uh, getting back to verse three, there's a mention that the, that John sees the, the, a woman sitting on the scarlet beast in the wilderness and we remember that that's also where the woman was with the child and the woman is a picture of the church and so now we've got this contrasting woman who is this harlot with the the true bride woman who is the church and they're both in the wilderness and it seems that and the wilderness is a picture of our life here on earth. And we could say the church throughout the church age, just like um, the Israelites were in the wilderness through that age after the Exodus and before the promised land, we are in that stage after the great Exodus of Jesus with his death and resurrection. 
um, that deliverance. And we are waiting um, the promised land that is to come. And we are in that intermittent period of the wilderness right now. And so the woman and the Could child... Could you say that perhaps we're in exile receiving God's word? Hey, that's good time. <laughs> and, it wasn't uh, just about COVID, folks. <laughs> yep. so, Wait, so have we finally reached that pinnacle now where like, you know how a movie that has a title and they try to incorporate the title of the movie into the movie <laughs> itself. Have we reached that level now where we just incorporated our, our title into this? I, I would oh, say yeah. we just jumped the shark, but I think that happened a while ago. so uh life is a picture of wandering in the wilderness and um and we also have a picture then of the israelites how there was you know a a big chunk of the people that um were unbelieving and uh we see that pictured with like the 12 spies only two of them believed that they could go into the promised land um, and then um, that entire generation actually passing away and then because of unbelief um, in God. And so we've got the, some of these pictures that I think are connected here. We, so we now see these two women, the, the, the woman, the, like the bride of Christ, the church, and then this harlot. But they're now both in the wilderness and there's sort of a battle going on, spiritual battle. And... Um, those who are trusting the dragon and those who are trusting the Lord um, in life. And the, and so we see that spiritual battle happening here. And I, I think that's maybe supposed to be tied in. And, and so again, these are pictures of this great time period of life between the first and second coming of Jesus. And I don't believe we should be interpreting this as one particular government, one particular generation or time period. Um, and so as we look at some of these details that are coming up about um, these these heads or these kings or these mountains and some of this stuff, we got to remember that um, this is going to be happening throughout this great time period. Um, and... I don't think we should get ahead of ourselves with trying to um, maybe definitively identify certain events in history um, or try to predict the future with these kind of things, um, expecting it to happen only in one, one very particular way. Yeah. And just, um, just to demonstrate that it's not something that we're just <laughs> making up. Um <laughs> This is this is precisely what the book of Hebrews is all about. Um, now I'm going to forget the chapter, but you know the the author or the preacher uh, to the Hebrews in his sermon, which is the book of Hebrews, uh, he speaks to his congregation and he directly connects them to uh, those Israelites that died in the wilderness because of unbelief that they couldn't enter the promised land because their hearts were hard and they refused to trust in God. And then he implores them, exhorts them not to make the same kind of error. Um, you know, and he'll make the point, who was it that died in the wilderness? Were they not those that came out of Egypt in the, you know, in the Exodus and through the Red Sea? Was it not those who saw, you know, who, you know, God provided manna for water from the rock, 
Um, they saw, you know, the glory of God in the tabernacle, you know, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They saw all these things, right? They're part of the, the people of God um, in, in an external way there. And yet it was those very same people who never made it to the promised land because they refused to repent of their sins and trust in the promise of God, which is ultimately in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews makes that direct connection to us uh, today as well. So that we, so that God has one people, right? And so he gives us the exhortation then not to harden our hearts and thus not enter God's rest, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Ultimately we enter it, now through faith in Christ, but the fullness of that is coming. Um, and so, you know, that's very much very similar to what you were going through, Matt, with, with making those connections in revelation to, to, um, you know, our lives in this age, in the wilderness and under assault from, uh, the devil, the world and our sinful flesh. And so, um, anyway, so we're not just reading revelation 17 and then just making stuff up. Like that is very much what the, the preacher to the Hebrews is laying out for us as well. I've never heard of that book. Are you sure we're not making it up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Just thought I'd double check. <clears throat> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so why don't we roll into nine and 10 uh, and we'll talk about some of these details. We've got the seven heads, which are seven mountains and are seven kings. We've already talked about sort of not identifying this with a specific person, maybe, or a time. Um, so maybe we could overview, if you guys know off the top of your head, how, how other folks maybe take this passage and look at it, and then maybe the best way to understand it. Well, I think a lot of, or at least what's been pretty common has been trying to connect these to various Roman emperors. Um, the trouble is though, that people can't agree on which ones uh, are there. Um, Almost always zero, though. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, anyways, I was just saying it was interesting because some have have him as the, the eighth one, not yet to come, but historically he precedes the others that they put in the list. Um, and I suppose those from a more, you know, if you take the approach that this is talking about, you know, specific things yet to come, this is kind of where they look for the Antichrist to be the the one who has not yet come. Um, but I think, again, this idea, this language that is so, I guess, vague in a sense or open, you know, just, again, reinforces that. John is not trying to put a specific person in that place, but that this is, this is the perpetual nature of this beast until this beast is destroyed. So it's not as if, Oh, that only happened in the past or most of it happened in the past. And then we're now kind of in this lull in between period. And we're waiting for the next one to come. You know, it's, this is always happening. And so even if we were to try to connect to specific rulers, they would always still only serve as a, as a type or a picture for that uh, political governmental societal power of the beast that the, that the dragon is driving. And so 
Um, I'll just say one thing too. One of the one of the really neat things about the fact that Revelation is not meant to be understood in what we say a literalistic way, where it's one to one equations with specific historical events and figures, is that the the figurative language again that doesn't mean not real, but the figurative language allows for you know, so much more richness and depth to the image. So Mike, you were talking about how, you know, John can talk about, you know, the seven, the seven heads and the seven hills and the seven Kings, and they're all talking about the same stuff, but we get three different images associated with that, that kind of help us fill out, you know, and understand what's going on instead of just, Oh, it just means this, or it just means that, Oh, it referred to, you know, someone that doesn't even exist any, you know, anymore or whatever. Um, it gives us a, a richness to the language so that we can come at it from a lot of different aspects because the stuff that God talks about, you know, it, it's so much more rich than just a straight one-to-one equation with this historical event and that historical event and that person and that person. Not that that doesn't happen, but, but it's so much more than that. And so we get kind of a, extra i don't know richness or we're able to see more aspects of it because um of the figurative language that's used and so rather than that being something that uh for some reason some people find to be really a bad thing um it's a really good thing um and it's a very helpful thing so again you know as i just said along that figurative doesn't mean not real and i think a lot of times that's the the connotation is if you take a passage figuratively oh that means that you don't think it actually happened or you don't think it's referring to real events figurative language does not preclude actual things happening um it's just the manner in which you are talking about these things so we just want to be clear on that figurative does not mean not real and figurative does not mean we do not believe what god has said in his word like those things are caricatures they're um really slanders against um, uh, against those who have, have our perspective on this and as we believe is faithful to scripture. So it's not, it's not any of those things. Um, it's just a manner of speaking, if that makes sense. So an example, I just uh, preached on Psalm 84 on Sunday and it says better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And a thousand is not a literal uh, number the literal number that it's uh that we're supposed to count like that it, this is an actual math equation that <laughs> one day one in god's courts a thousand is, is better than a thousand but not a thousand and two right and because <laughs> because actually this is it's sort of poetic you could say maybe or it's just referring to a large number like an exorbitantly large number but if we're actually being uh literal about it or um, and not figurative in any way, any way, we would have to say that, uh, you know, better is a moment or uh, whatever in your courts than unlimited amounts anywhere else. Right. And, and so there's not an actual equation that can make sense because any moment in God's courts are better than any unlimited amount of anything else. Right, but it's a way of speaking and we understand it. And when you put a number on it of a thousand, then it means it, you get this picture of this large amount. And, and that's kind of the point. And uh, 
So if anything, it's understated in that way, but it gives us, by putting a, a real number on it, it can give us an idea of something too. Um, or in like in this case with the seven heads and the 10 horns, you know, we've got the number seven, which we know is a number of completeness or wholeness from kind of a divine perspective or something. And so that would be sort of a, a picture of at least an imitation of, of uh, wisdom and wholeness, right? And then the 10 horns, you know, horns are a picture of like military might and earthly power and, and strength, right? And if we've got 10 of them, that's sort of, I don't know if that, that we could say that's, you know, used uh, symbolically of like a complete number from maybe an earthly perspective. So you've got like a whole number of strength from in an earthly sort of way. And so as supposedly this is set up as being really spiritually wise and, uh, and, and yet really strong in a military or political kind of way. And so even by the numbers seven and 10 and these things, we recognize that they are representing something. They're representing an idea that is supposed to be conveyed, not so much that we are to go out looking for seven heads or even seven kings or seven mountains, but they are representing an idea of, of this. And, uh, and so that's why we can see then that like the, the seven um, heads are also mountains and kings, right? Because uh, we're not interpreting this literalistically, but they are um, sharing an idea with us. And we're trying to interpret what the point is, not to count them or name them. Yeah, so similar to like when Daniel prophesies about, you know, the nations that would come after Babylon and he describes them, you know, as a bear, you know, or something like that. Like, we don't literally think that I forget who it was, is that maybe the Medes that was pictured as at Medes and Persians as a bear. Right. And so it's very apparent that, you know, scripture uses this figurative language, same thing with the statue that, you know, um, that depict those coming nations too. We wouldn't say, Oh, you know, uh, the Greeks are, you know, a part of a statue or a part of a body, you know, they're real, the real people, real nation and the, the statue that is seen in the vision represents something and communicates something by the figure. And so anyways, all that is to say is that we are not in any way bound to, you know, a literalistic treatment of, of this. There are portions of the scripture that expect you to take things one-to-one in a historical manner. Um, and it's pretty clear. Uh, where that happens but when you're dealing with prophecy and vision like we are in revelation uh the images i guess you can think of it like you know we say that a picture is worth a thousand words well it kind of works that same way with the images and the visions it can communicate so much more than just the bare words themselves and so uh god employs pictures and and symbolism to to communicate uh his word to us and by them being vague or being an image that we can we can see at different times and places it's applicable to the church at all times and in all places, right? Because we see this kind of stuff being stirred up in our world and going on. 
And we're just uh, saying of Jesus as the, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Do, are we expected to picture Jesus as a literal lamb? Yeah. Chapter no, four. Not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the point of the picture is, you know, the lamb was the sacrifice um, and particularly connecting with the, the Passover as well. And, well, here's Jesus. He is what that lamb pointed to. And so he's still spoken of in that figurative language as the lamb, but that doesn't mean that he didn't actually go to the cross as a, as a sacrifice for our sins. Right. So we know this, it just, for some reason, things go wonky and haywire when we get into prophecy and visions and we kind of lose our minds. But even like with Jesus, then by referring to him in different ways as a lion and as a lamb and these things, we, we are understanding him from a different perspective with different characteristics and, and it helps kind of round out the whole picture for us. And, and so we could say the same about these other um, pictures that were given in the scriptures. So Ben, as you were talking about, you know, the picture is worth a thousand words and like by writing revelation, the way it was written, it, it, it communicates more and it's richer and it's deeper. There are more layers. Your illustration of the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is perfect because as soon as we call Jesus, the lamb of God, where do our minds go? Like, right. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, it goes to the Passover, Mm -hmm. goes to every sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the idea of what Christ did for us is bigger and it's deeper and it connects all of scripture together to communicate this beautiful truth in that Christ laid down his life in your place. Um, so yeah, like this happens, this happens all over scripture and we do take things as, as types and as figurative things while still believing they're real and they happen. Um, but sometimes we have a harder time doing that when we get into revelation. I don't know why. You know, in uh, verse 10, it seems like there is a bit of a, like a specific kind of description of how things play out over time. And, you know, this is kind of a challenging thing to know what to do with. I don't know if you guys have suggestions with this, um, but, you know, five have fallen. One is the other is not yet to come. When he does come, he'll remain only a little while. You know, these kind of things it's hard to know what to make of it. And people have spent, spent a lot of ink trying to like figure out the historical sequence of events with particular people and such. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to get away from like you worrying too much about that and, and trying to identify it overly specifically. But I, I guess my one thought to add to that is that if there is something that we're supposed to see historically about this, where we could actually recognize these events, it's we're probably only going to really be able to see it um, after it happens. And probably if the Lord then reveals, as you look back and say, yep, now do you see what happened? Um, I was, t- I told you about this ahead of time because, uh, you know, when we look at the old Testament prophecies about events and stuff, they're usually too confusing or vague or convoluted or, you know, mixed up where we couldn't really have, you know, figured it out ahead of time. But after it happens, you look back and you say, oh man, now I see, um, that God had this planned and nobody could have figured it out, but God knew and, and now from, from that future perspective, looking back, you know, we can see how it all laid out and that God was 
sharing something and, and to his glory, you know, that, um, uh, that he did that, but, uh, you know, we, we can't be overly confident about some of those things and, and make too much of it. I don't think because, um, like in the, with the old Testament prophecies, you, know, most people couldn't really figure out that, um, Jesus was going to be coming, you know, first as a servant and, and that not all of these things would be happening in one fell swoop, that there would be, uh, this, this inauguration and then consummation after the church age, you know? And so people couldn't have placed that all perfectly on a timeline, but, you know, now we're starting to see a little bit more of how that's playing out. Yeah. So one, like you said, we don't want to get lost in the weeds of all of the, the details or get too hung up on certain specific things. Cause one that distracts us from the main thing, you know, um, the, the point of the figures is not uh, that we get consumed with trying to figure out every detail about the image, but that we understand um that we understand what's going on. And that's um, what Louis Bryan mentions. That's probably what the wisdom is talking about that is needed is for the saints to understand what is happening uh, in this world um, beyond what they can see with their eyes. And then um, in regard to what you were just talking about, Matt, I think Lou Brighton summarizes it pretty well here. I'll just read a few sentences from him. He says the beast then together with its seven heads, becomes and is for all time until the end, a terrifying symbol that represents all earthly powers and dominions and rulers that exercise tyrannical authority under the pretense of divine sanction of some kind or another. The outward form of this despotic governance will come and go, one form disappearing and being replaced then by another. It can even be severely wounded and weakened so much that at times it seems to have disappeared to the relief of Christians. But then it arises again in similar or different guises to terrorize once again its subjects. And so it goes on until God's judgment, in God's judgment, it is destroyed at the end when Christ returns. And I think that's a really good summary. So all of this stuff, you know, in this language of was and is and is not yet or is still yet to come, you know, it shows that that enduring nature of it in this in this age. And again, that we can't just point to one or or the other. But, you know, this beast can take many different forms. And at times it may seem like it's almost completely defeated, you know, and, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, we see that we see lulls in the history of the church where, you know, governing, governing powers and society has been more favorable uh, to Christianity and other times where it is outright hostile and everywhere in between. Um, And so we see that we can look back and we see that happening. Like we don't have to, name specific things in order to see that flow of, of history. And so, um, you know, one thing that helps us with, I think too, is it just reminds us just once again, that our hope in this, in this life is not in any governing authority. It's not in any political system. It's not in society. And it also fights against this idea, which is very um, prominent within again, post-millennialism or, you know, those that uh, associate themselves with what's called theonomy anyways um but this idea that you know, is, we need is that to similar to post-millennialism the theomony i'm not sure well i don't know i was, Malone, so. I was just gonna ask if you could just define that word because <laughs> i've never heard that before uh well theonomy just means god's law 
Ta'as and Namas. And so the people that adhere to that movement, I mean, you know, it's not that they all believe exactly the same thing, but the idea is that we should be, society should be governed by the laws that God has laid down in the Old Testament for, you know, his people, Israel, in the Old Covenant. So they completely ignore the fact that that much of that civil law and so on, or, you know, all those civil laws and so on, um, were given specifically to Israel under the old covenant. But anyways, so what they seek to do then is to basically, you know, this idea of Christianizing society and the whole world and bringing all of society and, uh, governance in all of these areas, um, under the authority of, of scripture as it, as it were, like to make it, kind of, you know, force it to be Christian in a sense. And this also, you know, so understanding that, that the devil is always doing his work during this time, that there are all, he always has these two beasts that he is animating and driving and so on means that we're never going to succeed in quote unquote, Christianizing the whole society. I mean, it completely ignores the sin and all that. I mean, that was part, there was part of that in, uh, in Calvin as well, that he, that he thought that, um, you know, we needed to Christianize society, at least in an outward way. And, you know, in the Lutheran church, we have a little, it's a little more complicated, a little more nuanced than that. We, we don't seek to, um, you know, force everyone to bow the knee to, uh, Christianity. Uh, rather we seek through, you know, the preaching of law and gospel and administration and the sacraments to, bring people, persuade them, bring them into the kingdom of God as it, as it were. So anyways, maybe that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but. Well, like point Cal- is that oh, Calvin oh. in, uh, in Geneva was trying to get everybody to all, even all the unbelievers to act like Christians and then make Christian, you know, Christian morals, biblical morals, you know, into um, uh, secular law and enforce them. And, uh, but, you know, Luther's perspective on, on that kind of stuff was that uh, that was like polishing the bronze on a sinking ship, you know, we're just making a bunch of unbelievers look better on their way to hell. And that's not the point, right? We, uh, we do want people to follow the truth and live morally upright lives and follow God's laws, but that follows salvation. And so our goal is actually to lead people to Christ that they would be forgiven of their sins and then that God would produce the fruit in their life to change them and that they would willingly live the Christian life and follow God's laws, not trying to make unbelievers act like a Christian that doesn't actually help them. And uh, so. Yeah. And we could get into a whole long side discussion about all the particulars of that, but anyways, we won't do that today. I don't, I don't think we should get um, in a long discussion because we've only got 15 minutes left to finish this chapter. <laughs> if I could, um, jumping back into this, um, see what you guys think about this. Uh, I, I Was I cutting you off, Ben? Was there something else you wanted to finish up there? No, I think we're good. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I was just um, thinking about this idea of, you know, there's five that have passed. There's one that is. There's another one that's come in for a little while. You know, I mean, almost at any point in history, maybe we could say that, hey, there's been others that have come before. There's one right now. There's another one coming, but it's not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we and and then the eighth is this beast. And it seems like it's 
it's kind of behind this whole thing throughout all of this, right? This eight is kind of at work during the time period of all of the seven. And, but the end of it is destruction. It's not actually going to win in the end. And I think that might be the point. And then we see that there's the 10 horns and there are 10 kings, but they've not yet received their royal power, but they will for one hour with the beast. And I don't know if this is maybe kind of a way of saying that each of these 10 kings, these these political rulers, military rulers are going to get their 15 minutes of fame. They're going to they're going to have their time in the sun to exercise some authority, but it's not going to last forever. It's going to be a short time. And again, the end is nothing. It's destruction. Um, But in the moment when we're going through all of this, it could seem like this is overwhelming. This is too much. And I wonder if we're going to lose, you know, and we could be really discouraged, but I think maybe the main point of all of this is we can see that these things have happened before they're going to happen again, but we don't need to give up hope. The Lord is, is over all of it and they don't win in the end. Yeah. And that would connect it very well to the beginning of revelation with the calls to endure. Right. So, you know, and that should be a great comfort to us. Yeah. You know, again, that we don't get caught up in, you know, for all intents and purposes, even though we wouldn't necessarily say it this way, but for all intents and purposes, trusting uh, governments or political candidates say, well, we better get behind this one or that one because they're going to be our savior. They're going to come in and rescue the church or they're going to do this. They're going to do that. And they're going to make everything all right again. And what scripture tells us in particular in revelation tells us nothing's going to be all right until Jesus comes back. Um, in that sense that, you know, this world will continue on in brokenness and sinfulness until Christ returns, but the church endures too, right? We have that, we have that promise, you know, as Matt said, we know the end result and the point of knowing the end result is that we would endure in the present. So even if it may seem like everything's falling apart and how can we escape this? We remember that, yeah, that the church has existed all of this time, right? Cause God has kept his church and yeah, Maybe we won't ourselves get through it uh, with our earthly physical lives. Okay, but we'll get those. We, we go to be with the Lord and we'll get those, our bodies back, our physical lives back at the resurrection. What do we lose, really? Right. And so I think that just, just in our own particular context in America, we become so short sighted. Like the moment is all we pay attention to, or, you know, just the short span of a couple of decades or whatever. And we think that, you know, everything, you know, hinges on, on that, or like, that's, that's all there is and all there will be. And I think that we need to, you know, with revelation, take the bigger view. We need to understand the whole scope of it. Right. So that we see that, Kingdoms have come and fall, fallen, right? They've come and gone. You know, America will, has come, it'll go at some way. If our Lord tarries, it's not going to be around forever. You know, nations rise and fall, all this stuff. But guess what? The church remains throughout it all. Why? Because the church belongs to Christ and Christ keeps his church. And so there should be a sense about us, even while we engage in, you know, the culture around us and we make use of, you know, the, you know, our privileges as citizens uh, for as long as we 
have them and in whatever capacity we have them, we, we make use of them certainly, but we need to have a mindset and a sense of, uh, I don't know if we just call it like ancientness or timelessness that is associated with the church, that we're not just here in the moment, but that the church has been here ever since Christ gave birth to the church. Right. And we belong to Christ. He keeps his church. He has given us his promise that he'll be with us always to the end of the age, right? So all the way up to the time of his return, Christ will be with his church. And so there should be a sense about us that is very much like, yes, we participate uh, in this world, certainly, but we are not of this world. And we are continually described as foreigners and sojourners and strangers and aliens, that we are in this in this age kind of passing through as it were but but that we don't we didn't just you know come into existence yesterday but god has always had his people and the church has endured and and has far outlasted any nation itself and kingdom and worldly power so many have come and gone right and even at times when it seemed like oh nothing could overthrow this power i mean that's what Babylon thought of itself, right? And Assyria before her. And that's what Rome thought and so on and so forth. And where are they? They're no longer here, right? But the church is here because Christ is here. And so we are so caught up in what we can see, right? But we are to walk by faith and not by sight, right? And so we're so bound up in the temporary, in the moment, and all we can see you know, it's just a little bit, you know, we can guess at it a little bit ahead. We can, we just look a little bit back, but we think that all of it revolves around this moment. We forget um, the universality and the timelessness of the church um, because of the timelessness of Christ, the Christ who keeps his church, right? And so whatever happens, whatever may be coming down the road, the church will always remain until Christ returns. Yes, individual Christians, we will we will die at one point or another. Okay, cool. We go to be with Jesus uh, for the time being, the resurrection. We get our bodies back, new heavens, new earth. Pretty awesome, right? So why are we so frantic and panicked and worried? And we're running around like we don't have promises from God. We're running around like Christ doesn't keep his church. We're running around and doing all this stuff as if we need some mere fallen human being to come and be our savior when we have a savior you know and we we act like god has not promised us anything like we're, we act in such desperation and panic like well we better make sure that the church lives on what power do we have to do that that is up to god he and he has promised that his church will remain until the end so maybe i don't know Maybe the church can just get back to being the church and instead of running around like crazy people looking for everywhere except for Jesus to be the savior and, and keeper of his church. And maybe we can remember that God has given us promises and that he keeps his promises and we can go back to doing our business as the church. So, you know, at times it'll be, we'll be all right. We have, you know, favor with society and government that that's cool. Praise God. At other times we'll suffer. So has been the story of the church. But when everything else has come and gone, God's church remains because Christ keeps his church. So 
I probably just wasted the rest of our time when we didn't get to the end of it. <laughs> no, I, I, think that that's, I think that that's awesome. I think that that points to our pridefulness too. Like that we think <clears throat> what we're going through is the worst thing that's ever happened. That's pride right there. Because I guarantee that down through the generations, it's not. So I'm actually doing a sermon series through using Gretchen Ronovic's book, Ragged, as a template. And this week we're talking about rest. And she's got like a fantastic quote that I think fits perfectly with what Ben, you just said. And it says that rest is the practice of acknowledging our limitation, which is humbling. Because if we ignore our limitations, we can continue to believe that we're like God instead of created by God. Like, think about that. That's literally what we're talking about here. We're trying to say, well, if we don't get everything in order, if we don't figure everything out perfectly, it's not going to happen. And it's like, no, God's already got it. And our acknowledgement of just saying we're not the ones who are in control is maybe exactly the way that we need to approach life period and especially the book of Revelation, too. God's got this. And the quicker that we realize and admit that he's got this and he's going to continue to get it with or without us, I think we'd be better off. Should we try to summarize the last few verses of the chapter here at the end? Yeah, because otherwise we're in danger of coming All back right. for week four in chapter 17. <laughs> Somebody else want to try it or should I give it a go? Give it a go, Matt. Okay, go so uh, I just want to point out that, you know, these these uh, horns and and heads are, are working, um, you know, being this is the beast that's being ridden by the harlot, right? So we got the fake church. Mm-hmm the the uh, sinful uh, counterfeit woman right that is uh, being controlled by the devil that's riding all these political forces in uh, throughout time in the church age and they are making war on the lamb in verse 14 uh, and the lamb will conquer them that's Jesus uh, he, for he is Lord of Lords and king of Kings and uh, and so title so what's that I was just say interesting note on that title. It's interesting because I believe it was the Persians in particular that would call their kings king of kings and lord of lords. It's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting thing, you know. And so, you know, that being a very, you know, obviously very prideful and arrogant statement, you know, but but Jesus is truly king of kings and lord of lords. So anyway, yep. whatever. And yeah. so yeah, like a lot of this is maybe a taunt. Here's the true thing, right? Not the counterfeit. And, and we see then that he actually has victory um, in the end, which is, this is our hope. This is the greatest news in this chapter. And by extension, then uh, another great piece of news for us, those with him. So those who believe in him are called and chosen and faithful. What an encouragement, um, despite the fact that they are under attack all the time. Um, they are going to have victory because they're with Jesus. Um, I just want to maybe summarize just previous to this. It said that all those things were, all those people were of one mind, you know, with the beast and, and with the devil ultimately. But at the end, 15 through 18, we see that, um, that all these people, the, the nations and peoples that are symbolized by this water that she's also sitting on, they are all uh, against Jesus and his followers. 
but then it, it everything starts to fall apart even though they've been in one with one mind with the beast it, it just descends into chaos and they start fighting against each other and and everything um and falls falls to pieces and um and they turn on each other and and god is kind of giving them a taste of their own medicine the devil you know is is working through chaos and anarchy and hate and all of these things and they're all of one mind with this as they try to attack the church and jesus but they fail and they end up destroying each other under god's uh judgment here too and and uh I guess this is even maybe, you know, a precursor to his final judgment of them. But, um, but we see that it descends into chaos and, uh, and the devil's plans being thwarted. Um, and, uh, and so even though he is pulling the strings behind the scenes of all of this and, and uniting people in his efforts, uh, it, it comes to nothing. Good summary, Matt. Anybody else have any closing comments on this on this chapter 17 of the book of Revelation? Silence. Oh, I can tell I have a gift for us. I sure hope so. I do have something. I just have to figure out <laughs> where it is. Give me one sec. Um <clears throat> It's interesting just while well, you look for that to think about yeah. how the that this harlot and the beast are together called the city Babylon and to think about this is the place where God's people were carried off and it was a place of temporal judgment for sins and stuff but um, ultimately that that couldn't hold them and God delivered them from that right and um, and so we can think of in history how Babylon was a, a place of, of uh, sinfulness and rejection of God and, and that God's people had to endure that. Um, but it was only for a time and God delivered them from Babylon. And in that too, when you're saying that God sent his word and his promise out everywhere, his people were scattered. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can think about that too, as we are scattered throughout the earth we are the bearers of God's word and his promises, light in the darkness, right? So even in even in the exile, as it were, you know, God has his purposes of getting his word out to all people. God's word during exile. I think um, the the best gospel proclamation in this chapter is verse 14. And I yeah. think that that's where we can leave it is saying all of this stuff in the beginning about this terrifying beast, this woman who's riding it, all of these things are to muster up fear, worry, concern. And that's what we see in the world around us. But what's most important is verse 14, where it says, they will wage war against the lamb, which is Christ in you know, dressed up like lamb chop, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And with him uh, will be his called chosen and faithful followers. That's us. Mm -hmm. So like here he is 
everything that we have to fear, everything that could potentially worry us, consume our day, steal our joy, all of that garbage is trumped by the lamb that will triumph over them. Will. It doesn't say may. It doesn't say could. It doesn't say possibly. It literally says will. Will triumph over and we get to be with him during that time. That's great. That's great news. It's a, it's a must and not a may, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you caught that reference, come play games with us later. No gift, though? I thought that was a big setup for a gift. No, I don't have a gift. Oh, okay. Well, then, uh, the right Reverend Benjamin, I don't know your middle name, but it's probably Joel Baker. David. 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 That's actually more fitting. Would you uh, close us in prayer? Actually, David was my first guest, and I'm like, nah, maybe not. Maybe not. Pray, pray for Mike's uh, salvation because he literally just lied right here <laughs> in the middle of the podcast. So. I'm always praying for Mike's salvation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Holy Father, thanks for uh, the truth that you have given us in your word and particularly in uh, this book of Revelation that you showed to St. John and had him write down uh, for us, and we just pray that uh, as things are, you know, depending on where we are in the world, but uh, as things often seem chaotic and out of control, um, grant that we would walk by faith and not by what we see with our eyes. For our eyes are greatly deceived and they cannot pierce beyond, you know, the physical and the material, the you know, that which we can actually see, but help us to see as you did with Elisha's servant, that you are ever present with us and your army is with you. And that there is nothing in this world, no power of Satan or the sinful world or a sinful flesh uh, that can do anything against you to overthrow you or thwart your purposes. Um, But that you are governing all things. You are indeed King of Kings. Lord of Lords, and we are your church. We belong to you. You have promised to keep us. May we trust that promise, for will you do what you say? And so we ask that you would give to us minds of wisdom to understand these things and the faith to trust your word um, in spite of what we see with our eyes. And perhaps maybe we can calm down a bit and trust your promises and see that you have kept your church through all kinds of different uh, dangers and tragedies. And again, all of those nations and kings and so on, they come and go, but you remain and you keep your church. So may we trust that promise uh, without doubt and without wavering. And may we be your church as we are called to be lights in the darkness, uh, snatching people from fire, as it were, that uh, sinners may come to repentance and to escape the final judgment reserved for the devil and his angels and all those who sadly uh, thumb their nose at you and reject the salvation that you have won for them. So pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, I'm realizing I don't know Natal's middle name either, so I'm going to guess Leroy. No. (laughs) 
Not even close. Give me the first letter. I'll take another guess. I, I know you're a spouse. <laughs> cougar, right? Cougar. It is cougar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little initial. If I give it to you, you're probably going to get it, though. All right. So give it to me. It's it's V. Viceroy. Yep. Got and it. It's, yeah. Excellent. It's Viceroy. <laughs> wow. I yeah. never would have expected somebody to guess that. You nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Michael Viceroy Natal, it has been a pleasure. Thank you guys too. <laughs> we'll see you next week.